We're in Matthew 12 as we go through this part of the book of Matthew, uh, verses 1 through 14 today. The, the background is Jesus has just given this incredible statement that we've dealt with the last two weeks where he says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, so, so this call to rest, rest for your souls, a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Jesus invites people to come to him in their weary and broken down state and he would give them rest. And on the heels of that, we go to Matthew 12 where Jesus is a, in a conflictual impasse with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were well-meaning people. The Pharisees had only been around a few decades. By the time the New Testament experience unfolds, the Pharisees were a group of well-meaning men who said that Judaism has time after time accommodated themselves to other religions and now the occupational forces. And so to guard the purity of Judaism, we will establish a party of purity that goes beyond what the Bible teaches, that goes beyond the Mosaic Code. And as they did that, the problem is they were commending themselves to other men by observe, letting people observe what they did, and they were trying to earn the favor of God, which goes against everything the Bible teaches. So they became very uptight, rules-oriented, uh, commending themselves to men to be seen, and earning the favor of God. And that's a bad place to go. So we have this conflictual attitude and relationship in Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14. Here are the scriptures printed in your worship guide. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it, this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
Well, let me give you my thesis statement that comes from this text. When I understand, brothers and sisters, that one greater than the temple walked among us. And what that means is Jesus is saying, I fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's no longer a need for a sacrificial system or a temple because I, by my one act on the cross, fulfilled everything. One greater than the temple walks among you. An incredible statement. When I understand that, and as I glory in the gospel of grace and understand the wonder of the forgiveness of sins by Christ alone, it brings joy, hope, and certainty to my heart which in turn means that I don't have to commend myself to men anymore or earn the favor of God, which I think leads to a life of love and service. You, you get freed up. The gospel frees you up. So that's where I'm going this morning. I want you to see that. So, so when I understand that one greater than the temple walked among us, who by his death upon the cross and his shed blood fulfilled everything the Old Testament temple signified, all the Old Testament sacrificial offerings. When I understand that and I get the gospel, I live with certainty and joy and hope, which in turn I think frees me up to no longer commend myself to people or earn the favor of God, which leads to a life of, of, of service and, and love. The problem with the Pharisees, they were well-meaning. They had all these rules written around the Mosaic Law. There were 39 rules they had added to the Old Testament to, to observe the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was no longer a joy, but just a rules-keeping burden to people. And, and, and you couldn't heal someone on the Sabbath if, if their life wasn't threatened. And the man with a, with a withered hand didn't have a, a life that was threatened. But you can't do that. And Jesus says to them, Which is, if you had a sheep that fell into a ravine, would you save the sheep? They said, well, of course. He said, well, men are more important than, 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 than farm stock. And he healed the man. And it was a scandal. And they conspired, it says, and how they could destroy him. So the Pharisees were what I call rest snatchers, joy snatchers, because they were committing themselves to people and earning the favor of God. They said, basically, the sacrificial system is good, it's fine, but, 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 but just to cover our basis, we want to go beyond the sacrificial system and beyond what God requires to commend ourselves to men and earn the favor of God. And I, I said two weeks ago that, that we are, I believe, we struggle with being recovering Pharisees. Unless we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, there are well-meaning people sitting here this morning who will this week think, I've got to do this and this and this to earn the favor of God and to be on the A-team or the travel squad or have my picture on the, on the Lord's refrigerator or whatever. That's already been done for you in Jesus one greater than the temple system walked among them. One who by his work upon the cross would fulfill the demands of the law. In the book of Galatians, Paul dealt with this issue. There were some people who came into these churches, these brand new churches, and they were very erudite and they were good with words and they said, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but you've got to go beyond that. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to observe these laws and you've got to do this and this and so forth and so on. And Paul writes this letter that thunders 
And he says, if I or an angel from heaven preach any gospel other than one that you've received, may he be condemned to hell. Strong. And then he has this little phrase in Galatians 4 verse 15 that I think is, is, is so instructive. He's writing to these people and, and he says to this, what has happened to all of your joy? What, what's happened to your joy? And this is what happens. When you start thinking that you've got to commend yourselves to men and earn the favor of God, the cross is clouded and you forget your position in Christ and your joy goes out the window. We should be people of joy because we understand that Jesus paid it all forever. That I am complete in him. Paul says, what happened to our joy? And then he says in verse 19, he says, my little children for whom I am once again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So, so preach the gospel to yourself. Or in the book of Colossians, a passage that's in your worship guide. Paul looks at this church and they've been befuddled by the Colossian heresy, which is various teachings that all said basically this, it's fine to believe in Jesus, but... You must have experiences, or you must observe this law, or you must have these magic words. And the Apostle Paul says, therefore, verse 16 and 17, chapter 2, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Christ is it. So, so, so the Pharisees diminish the sacrificial system. The Galatian and Colossian heretics diminish the cross by committing themselves to others and trying to earn the favor of God. So, so the disciples go through a grain field and they eat. And that's one of the 39 rules they put around the Mosaic law. You couldn't eat grain on the Lord's day or take grain from the field on the Lord's day. And they, 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 Jesus says, you know, haven't you read the Old Testament? Or man has a withered hand. And, and Christ says, you know, do you have a sheep? On a parallel account in Mark chapter 3, the same example, it says that same story he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. See, when you get caught up in trying to commend yourselves and earn the favor of God, your heart gets hard because it's all about you. But when you see the cross, you realize it's all about Christ. It's all about the mercy of the Lord. That's why I quoted 1 Corinthians 1 recently, verse 26, where Paul says, not many of you who were called were, were wise. Not many of you were, who were called to faith were powerful. Not many of you who were called were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. He chose the weak things to shame the strong. He chose the low and the despised to bring to nothing the things that are. Listen, Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
The cross takes away boasting. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, says this. He says, the real test of being in the presence of God is that either you forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better just to forget about yourself. I think he's right. We don't commend ourselves. Our hope is built in Christ. So we have freedom to get out of the recognition games. I'm going to give you three points from this text. I hope you'll see them. The point number one is Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ says, someone greater than the temple walks among you. Boom. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies that was entered once a year was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing free, open, glorious fellowship with the triune God. The book of Hebrews is all about the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross written to people who had came, I think, from a Jewish background. And he says in Hebrews 10, says that, that verse 11, that every high priest stands daily at the service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They just postpone judgment. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, a single offering. Chapter 9, verse 11, when, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means, means of, of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. So our, our, our hymns reflect this. If you're a little older like I am, some of the most stirring hymns, for example, I, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It is enough. It, it's enough. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The sweetest frame means the, the, the best day. The best days are, are mixed bags. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. Or maybe my favorite hymn says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. My, my, my question is... Uh, are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Do you rejoice in the gospel of grace? As you understand the inner Pharisee and the Pharisaical world around us is always commending themselves to other people and trying to earn the favor of God, do you run to the cross? Point two, to glory in the gospel, to glory in the gospel, I must continually enthrone Christ and the Word and dethrone traditions before the blinding clarity of Scripture. 
uh, bear with me here, think about this. So I've got a couple of statements in the worship guide from something called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from 1978. I'm going to read Article 2 and 5. We affirm, it says, we affirm that the Scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of the Scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. In other words, it's, it's wonderful to have creeds and religious opinions and confessions of faith. I love them, but they are below the Scripture. Article 5, we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scripture was progressive. We deny that latter revelation, which may fulfill early revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. In other words, everything we need for life and godliness is here. God's revelatory message has been complete in the Scripture. We believe that. Therefore, we sit under the authority of the Bible. The, 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 the blinding, glorious, clarifying Scripture examples. A guy named Martin Luther, talked about him frequently, died in 1546. In 1517, he's a monk. And uh, there's a guy that's going around selling something called indulgences, a guy named Tetzel. And Tetzel said, if you give so much money to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is a beautiful facility, then if you give so much money, then you can buy someone's right to go to heaven. And Luther said, a pox on that house. That is wrong. And so he's with great uh, boldness, post the 95 Thesis on a church door in, in Germany. Creates a furor, uproar. People would start discussing. There's something called the printing press. And a guy named Gutenberg, who just 50 years before started printing out uh, books, which is a wild thing, a glorious thing. So people read the 95 Thesis. In the midst of that, Luther was a loyal son of the church. He said, if anybody ever was going to get to heaven by being a monk and their monkery, it would be me. He was very much a Pharisee, always trying to commend himself to people and, and earn the favor of God. He was eaten up with that. And so two years later, he's going through this. He's studying. He says, I, don't, I had no peace. I had no peace. And two years later, he's in a castle. He's translating the Bible. And this is what happens to him. Two years, this is 1517, 1519. Follow this. He says, I kept beating on the Apostle Paul especially the book of Romans, because I needed to understand what it means when it says the righteousness of God, the righteous or the right standing with God. You see, Luther believed it's something that he had to do to earn. It's a Pharisee. He said this, then I be, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God or right standing with God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith, is given to us. I don't earn it. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Something freely given to us by a merciful God who justifies us by faith, not by works. Listen, 
This is one of the greatest sentences in, history, in Christendom. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. I entered paradise. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thus, that place in Romans 1 was for me truly the gate of paradise. Close quote. He says, I, I got out of committing myself, earning the favor, and saw the cross did it all. And he says, I felt as if I entered the gates of paradise. Boom. So he starts writing more books. And it becomes more biblical. And then two years later, so 1517, 1519, 1521, Luther is called before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, at a place called Worms, the, the, the Diet of Worms, a big discussion. And, and all the, the royal leaders of, of Europe are there, sitting there, and Luther comes in wearing a monk's robe on an ox cart, just think, thinking, you know, they may kill me. And so he stands before the Holy Roman Emperor. I mean, and, and the crown, I mean, this is, this is, this is, Unbelievable, really. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And so they, they pile all of his books on the table. He's written a lot. And they said, you need to renounce these writings. And Luther says, well, you know, I, some of them aren't as good as others, but I need to think about this. Can I have a night? And so he goes back and he paces in his room all night. And he prays because he really, he really thinks they're going to kill me. If I don't renounce it, they're going to kill me. If I don't recant. And so he goes in the next day and he says, what are you going to do? And Luther says this, so I've got it here, it's so good. I, I don't know if you enjoy this, but I really enjoy telling you this. I mean, it is so good. And Luther says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. <clears throat> I, so, so what he's saying is what I'm trying to say this morning, is that councils can err. Pastors can err. But the Scripture doesn't. And, and so we're sitting here this morning on June, June the 2nd, 2019, in part, because Martin Luther in 1521 stood there and said, I will not turn away from the authority of the Word of God. My heart is captured the Word of God. Scripture alone became one of the rallying cries of the Reformation. And 100 years later, after John Calvin died, <clears throat> There's a little phrase developed in Holland that said, the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. So I look at this passage and I go, if, if Christ is to be strong in my life, I've, continue, I've got to continually bring everything under the authority of the Bible. Every, if you've been anywhere in the world, every culture in every place has issues that they deal with, and it's easy for well-meaning people to take a cultural issue and make it equal with Scripture. And when that happens, there's death. There's death. So we should always go ad fontes, to the sources, to the sources. What does the Bible say? So, so that, that's, that, that's my plea. Now let me give you an example, another example. 
Those of us who grew up in Baptist churches, there was something that we had for years called the Broadman Covenant, okay? Broadman, two syllables, named after two of the founders of Southern Seminary, godly men, John Broadus from Virginia and Basil Manley Jr. from Charleston, South Carolina, broad man, Broadus Manley, uh, Basil Manley. In fact, Basil Manley's father, who was pastor of First Baptist Charleston, uh, for 17 years was uh, president at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. A godly man, president of, of school, the school that played in the National Football Championship in January, Alabama. And they were beaten, by, by the way, if you haven't heard, badly, really badly. So anyway, that's beside the point. But the Brahman Covenant. The Brahman Covenant was even in some of our Baptist hymnals. And uh, so I'm, I'm just going to read part of it to you and, and explain something. Just several paragraphs. I'm going to read one small paragraph. We engage, we, we, we also engage to maintain family worship and secret devotions, to religiously educate our children, amen, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, amen, to walk with purity in the world, to be just in our dealings, amen, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale of and the use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage, to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior, amen. Uh, except, so here, here's, here, here's, here's, here's the issue. Let me say this. I am not a partaker of alcohol because I was raised in a home where we did not, in a dry county, uh, with a mom who had suffered the ravages of alcoholism in her family. And I'm also married to a woman who feels just as strong as my wife. So when your mama and your wife say don't do something, you do not do it, okay? So I'm not trying to belittle this. I think, I think that alcohol is a, uh, the, the misuse of alcohol and drunkenness is, is, is condemned by the Bible. In fact, the Bible says that people who are habitually drunkards without repentance don't go to heaven. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge issue. And yet, the, the problem with this statement is, I will not sell or use intoxicating drinks as a beverage, is not a biblical statement. It is a, it is a cultural statement that reflects the 18th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that was overturned by the 21st Amendment. So you have to be very, this is a, a prime example, just a, that we, many of us have lived through, of taking a, a, a I think, a, a, maybe a very applaudable thing, but making it equal with Scripture. You cannot do that. You should not do that. Now, I, I would argue there are some good things came out of the 18th Amendment. If you study sociologically, that, that before the 18th Amendment, uh, the average American adult consumed 7.2 gallons of alcohol per year. Afterwards, 2.3. So that's, that's applaudable. And those of you that love NASCAR, NASCAR was birthed when these guys were trying to outrun the revenuers in North Carolina and Tennessee. That's a true story. If you want to study NASCAR, if you like NASCAR, say, hey, these guys, you know, they just trying to outrun the revenuers. Um, so it, it's an issue. But my, my, my issue is this. I, you cannot take a, a norm in your culture, and every culture has its norms. Some of them are very good and make them equal to Scripture. Does that make sense? Because if you do that, it's death. It's just, it ends up being death. 
because we must be people who bring everything under the microscope of Scripture. John Calvin uh, said this. John, John Calvin in the Institutes talked about the authority of, of, of Scripture. and I wrote this down yesterday. It was so good. Calvin says, um, if I can find it, I thought it was right here. Well, here it is. He says, permanent, there's a permanent relationship between faith and the power of the Word of God. Faith is the firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, His mercy and His goodness, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise that's found in Christ, revealed to our minds by the Word of God and sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He said that there's a connection between hearing and ingesting and believing the Word and growing in faith. And we said before, there's a little book we study that says that there's four Ps that help me grow as a disciple. And that is you, you have the, the, the powerful proclamation of the Word of God by the people of God progressively as they depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So be people of the book. Love the Word of God. Let it be your joy and your hope and give, gives you a place to walk. Because we need to be very clear and understanding of what the Bible says. And it's, it's got to be, for, for example, this whole LGBTQ movement, which is just such a mind-boggling thing. I was reading this the other day in a website that a woman who formerly was married to a man has a 13-year-old daughter and divorced her husband. Now she's in a relationship with a, quote, gospel singer, close quote, two women. The gospel singer says, Quote, it was definitely unexpected. It just happened when you meet another soul that you connect with at such a deep level. It is unexplainable, and it is so beautiful. She later said, I think you can't help who you fall in love with. God is love, and he just doesn't care. Close quote. And that's just wrong. It's wrong on several levels. Love is doing that which is in accord with the wisdom that comes from the throne room of the triune God. It's not based upon my impulses or my inclinations or whatever. So, so we've got to be clear on the Scriptures. We, as we face the daunting task of speaking to Christ in this culture, in 1933 there was something written called the Humanist Manifesto. One of the chief, chief authors of it was a professor of education and philosophy at Columbia and Harvard named John Dewey, 1933. And it says this, and this is the world we live in, I think. Quote, there is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there is no need for the propositions of traditional religion. Immutable, unchanging truth is dead and buried. There is no room for fixed and natural law or permanent moral absolutes, close quote. Wow. No room for it. It's dead and gone. It's buried. And I'm saying we've got to be people who speak with dignity and love and brokenness. And I look at, I look at the things around us and go, how, how, how do you conquer? You know, how do you conquer racism? Whether it's from this ethnicity or that ethnicity or this or whatever. How do you conquer eth, uh, this, this racism? I, you study the Bible. The Bible says that there's neither male nor female, slave nor female, whatever, Greek or Jew, everything is level at the, at the ground of the cross. 
says that we're all one in Christ, that, that, that the reality of the cross destroys ethnic pride and tribalism. How do you, this Me Too movement, how do you respond to the Me Too movement? You study the Bible where the Bible says, you, you, 1 Timothy 5, you treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. That's the way you treat the opposite sex. When it comes to, to younger people, Jesus says in Matthew 18, it would be better for you to have a big stone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So you guard yourself. Or how do you deal with the, the, the family and the, our culture seeing marriage as a casual relationship that may be renewed occasionally versus a covenant between one man and one woman for life? You study the Scripture where God says, I hate divorce. And I, I brought people to be together for a lifetime. So, so you, th th that's what you do. And you, you guard your spirit. You take the Scripture seriously. Number three, very quickly, when you see that Christ is a fulfillment and you see the glory of the gospel, you understand that people are to be loved. You understand the mark of a Christian is love. The man in the temple, the Pharisees couldn't see this man needed help because they were too busy commending themselves to each other and trying to earn the favor of God. And, and so... And for example, in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing about Timothy. He says, Timothy, stay in Ephesus. Verse 3, so you teach certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Just stuff. Which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And Paul says, there, there's... Endless myths and genealogies, and people just talk about nothingness. And then there are those who understand that life is a stewardship from God to be lived with incredible worship and accountability and love because eternity awaits. And he says, and as you understand this stewardship, the next verse, he says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. And I stop and I ask myself, do I love people? Have I so beheld the glory of the cross that I, I don't have to commend myself to people and earn the favor of God? It frees me up to love. Have I understood that I can be involved in endless speculations that go nowhere, or am I someone who understands that life is a stewardship, a calling from God to be lived with dignity and grace because eternity awaits? And that Jesus loves me and has gifted me to do what he's called me to do. And as I understand that stewardship, the goal of stewardship is love. Love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. And a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith are the reality of understanding the gospel of grace. So, brothers and sisters, as we deal with these issues, as we deal with a culture that's com always commending themselves to each other, and as we deal with the inner Pharisee in our own heart, let us run to the gospel of grace. And as we do so, let us be people who walk in love and care for other people. Let's pray. Lord, I, we confess today that uh, it's easy 
so easy to not preach the gospel and to listen to the world around us that's constantly comparing and commending and puffing up and putting down. And to, be, to fall in that trap, it's, it's so easy to think that we've got to go beyond what the cross has done to earn the favor of God. And that's just silliness, heresy. So help us to fight the inner Pharisee with the gospel of grace. Help us to do that and to walk in the way of Christ and to live as stewards. Understand that stewardship flows into a life that's defined by love, a clear consciousness, sincere faith, pure heart. We want that. So show us the greatness of Christ. Lord, forgive us for taking well-meaning norms in our life, health norms or uh, whatever, and making them our building block instead of the gospel of grace. So may everything that we entertain be brought under the lordship of Christ. May every confession that we have, everything that's taught here, come under the lordship of Christ and the authority of the Scripture. Thank you. There's freedom there and joy and purpose there in Christ's name. Amen.